And I should say, because my wife and I are proud of this, we're in a life group together. Yes. Which is very fun, too. Thank so we are thrilled you were here. Thank Thanks, you. Man. Good morning, Mariner's Church. It's so nice to be here. It's so nice to meet you. Um, if this is your first time here, I know Mike had welcomed you, but I would love to also not only say welcome, but welcome home. My hope is that with you walking in through these doors and sitting in between these walls, that you don't feel as if you are just another face or another name or fulfilling some religious obligation, but that you can come to a place that feels like like home. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay, so um, I know it's nine o'clock in the morning and half of you have not had coffee, but I grew up in a church in East Los Angeles, California, when the pastor, aka my daddy, had said, can I get an amen? People talk back to him. And I know this is Orange County and we just don't do those things, but let me tell you, make me feel at home, okay? If we are in the house of God, we should have the freedom to say amen. It's not to assuage somebody's ego, but it is to say, I believe that. If God has a word for you, feel at freedom to say amen. We heard some amazing, life-transforming stories of little kids that are accepting Jesus to be their forever friend, their savior of their life. And we are like, oh, that's so lovely. Hallelujah. I mean, these little kids are going to be with Jesus. So I think we need to thank all the volunteers and everyone who put their blood, sweat, and tears, literally, into Vacation Bible School and thank them once again for making home. Making home. Like Mike said, my name is Bianca Oltoff. I am chief storyteller for the A21 campaign. We are a global anti-human trafficking organization with the audacious, crazy goal of abolishing the injustice of slavery in the 21st century. It is my honor and it is my privilege to do that. Um, Mariners is my home church. I'm on the teaching team of the Irvine campus. I usually cover for Ronnie Rowe, who does Sunday nights. And um, number two, I am Hispanic. I'm Mexi Mexican and Puerto Rican and Mexican, Rican, um, which basically means I popped out of the womb with uh, high heels, 10 pounds of makeup on, and I can't get anywhere on time. Um, <laughs> But God, in his cosmic sense of humor, allowed me to marry a man of German descent. And if you know anything about the Germans, they are super organized ones who are always on the time. And so I have a counter here that's counting me down. And I'm going to go back to him and say, baby, I finished on time. If you brought your Bibles, please pull them out. If you were with us last week, you will know that we are currently in a series called Epic. And it is a, a look at the heroes and the villains of of some of our favorite Bible characters. What's really exciting though is that when it comes to heroes and comic books, I'm always the person that liked the underdog. I like the unsung hero, the non-recognized person, the person that maybe we saw them as a blip on a screen, but really they're the backbone of a plot line. And up until a couple years ago, when we talk about heroes, I was never the kid that liked sports athletes or looked up to pop stars, or I didn't even know the difference between Marvel and DC Comic. Um, not until a couple years ago when there's kind of been this resurgence of popular heroes and comic book characters that are resurfacing, like Batman and Spider-Man and Superman, that I begin to see that there's a difference. But I'm also recognizing that there's this innate need for heroes. It wasn't until I read a recent article with Christopher Reeves, if you guys are familiar with him, he was the actor that played Superman in some of the 80s and 90s Superman films. And he said something profound in this article. He said this, a hero is an ordinary individual who finds the strength to persevere and endure in spite of overwhelming obstacles. So as the teaching team was beginning to prepare and look for, for characters of the Bible, Old or New Testament, I wanted to find people that were overlooked or maybe that we've never heard of. 
And in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, there are amazing characters and amazing leaders and heroes that rise up in the pages of scriptures. Some of these names you will know and some of them you won't. Some of my favorites are Ruth. She was from a pagan land called Moab in the Old Testament. We see her rise up. She was a barren widow and God blessed her. What about Luke and Demas? Luke was a physician and there was a, a couple that was recognized and said Luke was a loved physician. How amazing. I'm inspired by people who are out in the workforce being the salt and light of the world and they are a blip in the Bible and yet he loved his job, he loved God, and he loved man. The ultimate calling. What about Rahab? I mean, we don't, a lot of people don't want to touch Rahab, okay? She was a prostitute who smuggled illegal aliens out of her country and yet God saw her. And he recognized her and he blessed her because she helped his people. What about Jephthah? We don't hear much about this uh, judge. He's from the book of Judges, but it's interesting. He gets one chapter in the Old Testament, but he's listed in Hebrews. Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. He's listed there as being a man of faith. Esther was an orphan chosen as queen for her looks and said she was a hero that brought freedom from her, for her people. Abigail was a, she was a woman who married a fool, and yet God had favor upon her because of her sweetness and her kindness. She's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so, so many times there are amazing characters who are ordinary people. If you are a note taker, which I hope you are, the title, sermon is, of the, title, the title of the sermon is Extraordinary Leaders. Simply for this, as we go through the weeks of this series, my hope is that we highlight the humanity of man. That's man with a capital M, man is humanity. We highlight the humanity of man, juxtaposed, contrasted with the goodness of our God. And for those that put their hope and their faith and trust in him, they can be leaders. They could be heroes. And they, my dear friends, are epic. And it's an invitation for us to be incredibly epic as well. Now, this story is not about us, for ultimately we are here to serve one hero, and that is a man named Jesus, who was sent by God Almighty. But what I love is that our, my generation, should I say our culture, is dying to be led and looking for heroes. Berkeley University, uh, Cal State, or excuse me, UC Berkeley, has a fascinating study on heroes. And um, some research has stated that 87% of people are looking for a hero. They would like a hero. But interestingly enough, only 20% of people said that they acted heroically, and only 7 to 8% said that they believed that they were a hero. So in a world that is dying to be led, in a world that is looking for heroes, what an invitation for us to look at the pages of scriptures and see those that had led well, those that have been heroes, and for us to step in and fulfill the empty pages yet to be written. You may be sitting here saying, like, you don't understand. I'm not a leader. I'm not a hero. I don't care to be. Listen, you are a leader whether you want to be or not. Whether you lead one, 100, 1,000, or 1 million, we as children of the king, we as Christians, are leading people to have an understanding of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So by default, you are a leader. So lead well. You may be sitting here like, I'm just a mom. I can't even take a shower once a week. Or I'm a, a corporate entrepreneur. I don't have time. I, I don't ha I'm, I'm just a student. I'm just a manager. I'm just a mom. No, you are more than that. You are a child of the king who's empowering you to do great and mighty things, even if you feel like you are unworthy, whether you are filled you are uncalled or unqualified. As the adage says, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And so turn with me. I have one person with me. Thank you, sister. You get extra bonus points. She said, that's right. Yes. 
If you brought your Bible, turn with me to Judges 4 as we open up God's Word. If you brought your Bible, even if the pages light up, will you please hold it up nice and high and proud? Come on, church. There you go. Awesome. Ooh, I got to call some people on the carpet. Listen, don't go to the grocery market without your wallet. You don't get in your car without your keys. You don't go to chemistry class without your chemistry book. You don't come to church without your Bible. Okay, so for everyone who brought your Bible, may your bank accounts be full. May your car always be washed and have gas in it. May your children never talk back to you. If you are married, may your wife never nag you and your husband never smell. If you are single, I pray you meet somebody who is fine. I pray that their teeth are straight, their bank accounts are large, and they have six-pack abs. And if you didn't bring your Bible, I'm sorry. It's okay, I put the scriptures on the screen. Judges chapter four is where we will start. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. Now we can read this and not think twice about it, but if you're taking note, I wanna highlight a few things. This woman was incredibly influential and powerful. In one sentence, we have these words that are popping out for us. This is a tall order in 2014. But you can imagine what it was like in 50 AD. This was absolutely unheard of. Let me give you some cultural context. Women had no property rights. Women were uneducated. They had no intellectual capita. They had no rights to land. In many places, they were treated as a commodity, as a good to be owned, and in many cases, abused. And so here we have this woman who is leading. She's a judge, not of one tribe of Israel, but of all the tribes of Israel. We can compare her to get your mind wrapped around just her influence and her power. Think of the political prowess of somebody like uh, Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. She has the boldness and courage of Joan of Arc, and she has the prophetic edge of Beth Moore. I mean, this woman is a bad mama jamma, okay? But in addition to her being a judge, what I love here is that it says that she's a prophet. Now, a prophetess is just a female prophet who gives divine oracles from God. Essentially, she is the mouthpiece empowered by the Holy Spirit to give words of wisdom to the land. So she has two offices. In your Bible, will you circle judge and will you circle prophet or prophetess, depending on the translation of your Bible? She holds two offices. No other judge in the entire book had that honor. In fact, if you pull back and look at the canon of Scripture, the 66 books, there's only three people in the entire book of the of books of the Bible that have that as well, a prophet and a judge, Moses, Samuel, Deborah. This woman is amazing. Now, what I love is that Deborah as a woman had to, um, we're speculating here because Scripture does not say this. There's only two chapters that we really can excavate her life. But the Bible doesn't necessarily say that she was oppressed as a female, but you have to understand the cultural context of that time. It is safe to imply and to assume that she's born into a time where it was not a benefit to be a woman. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of what she's born into, God uses her. So it doesn't matter what you're born into. It matters who is in you. God is more concerned with your, not concerned with your history, and very concerned with your destiny. It doesn't matter what you're born into. God can use you. What did this woman have to overcome to be where she was at today? Or excuse me, to be, at that time, at, to be where she was at at that time. Now, we don't have time to go through verses 1 through 3, but I'll just kind of give an overview. There was a judge prior to Deborah, and his name was Ehud. He was a good judge, and there was peace in the land. But when he passed, the children of God ran amok. They decided to do right what was in their own eyes. And when we turn to our carnal sin, when we start acting crazy like a fool, um, the, the enemy comes up, and that's what we see here. The king of Canaan once again rose up, to oppress the children of Israel. 
Sisera was the controller of the army. So we have the king of Cana, and right under him, we have Sisera, the leader of the army. We are told here in verse 3, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. If you brought your Bible, get a highlighter, get a pen, write it on a note, tattoo it to your forearm, be a hipster in Orange County. Everyone loves those arm tattoos right now. They cried to the Lord for help. Now, 900 chariots may not seem like a lot to us, but you need to understand that during this time, think of it as tanks and weapons of mass destruction. This is massive. It was one of the largest known armies during that time. And I'm all, I'm a slightly dramatic, and I'm all about the novella, okay? So what we see here is that one of the largest armies is going up against the Israelites, who have nothing. 900 chariots, and we are told 40,000 men. How do we know it's 40,000? Because we find out in the next chapter. So 40,000 men are going up against an army that has nothing. How do we know they have nothing? In chapter 5, which we don't have time to do, I'm talking, listen, I know you're looking at me like, wow, she talks fast. I don't talk fast. You listen slow. Hang on. We're giving some history. (laughs) In chapter 5, we are told that they did not have a spear and they didn't have a shield. This is interesting because in 1 Samuel 13, 19, verses 19 to 20, it says that uh, the Canaanites had gone and, excuse me, the Philistines had gone and oppressed the children of Israel, taking their iron, taking all their weapons, and killing their blacksmith, all their blacksmiths. So, it, as we learn in Judges chapter 5, they didn't have any weaponry. All they had was men. Can you imagine what is going on? This is drama. And I don't want this to feel as if it's far away, hundreds and hundreds of years. Have you ever felt like you were going up against an army with no shield and no sword? Have you ever felt like you were oppressed, oppressed, depressed? Jesus, I have nothing to fight with. I'm barely holding on. There is this thing that is up against me. I don't know what to do. I have one person that is honest in the house of God. I'm going to make you raise your hand. Have you ever felt like you were going up against an army with nothing to fight with? Thank you. I'm going to read to you Acts chapter 4 when people lied in the house of God, Ananias and Sapphira, and they were struck down. So don't lie in the house of God. There are times and moments where we, like the children of Israel, cried to the Lord for help. Jeremiah 33 says, call unto me and I will answer you. And that's what God does. Check out verse 4, that Deborah was leading God's people. It was a position not that she chose. It was a position that God gave her. In Judges 2.18, we are told, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was their judge, and he delivered them from the hand of his enemies. As God is raising up judges back in the day in the Old Testament and leaders and heroes in the New Testament, I firmly believe that he is beckoning us in 2014, to rise to the occasion, to be the heroes and leaders of our own society, for our families, for our communities, for our states, for our workplaces. God is beckoning us. Will you rise? In verse 4 through 7, join with me. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Labadoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites went to her to have their disputes settled. Now Deborah acted like a war prophet, which again, many would think would be inappropriate for a woman. And yet despite of that, we see that this lady is a leader and there's no way to get around that. She had the authority of two offices that were granted to her by the Lord and she's leading well. Uh, Two interesting things to note in the scripture passage is one, usually when we see a woman listed in scripture, it's that she is the wife of so-and-so. 
So her uh, status in society was predicated upon the role of her husband. And yet here we have it reversed. We have Deborah, who was married to Lapidoth. There is one mention of Lapidoth in the Bible, and that's only to um, say that it was Deborah's husband. So her authority in the land isn't predicated upon her marital status. That mention of her husband, Lapidoth, was simply to let everyone know that she was married. Now, there's something missing from this passage of Scripture that we don't usually see with other women. There's no mention of children. Now, children for a woman are their inheritance. That is their law in the community. That is their purpose. And yet, we see here, this woman had no children. We don't know if that's choice or circumstance, but it is very interesting that in spite of lack, in spite of she is a woman, she doesn't have kids, we don't know her history, we don't know her story, in spite of all of those things, God mightily uses her. Check out verse 6. She sent for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, Jabin's the king, Sisera is his assistant, the, the war army leader. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. What's very interesting about the beginning portion of verse 6, in the original context, it's not the Lord has said. It's a rhetorical question. She actually, we could paraphrase it and say, hasn't God told you to do this? very interesting slight nuance of words but what she's talking to she's rhetorically asking him a question hasn't God told you to do this hasn't God told you to go to battle and there's sometimes where I hear people teach out of, of this passage of scripture and there's almost like a way to demonize him as if he is you know weak or you know that he's not moving how many times has have we heard the voice of God or felt prompted to go do something or to sign up for a faith adventure to volunteer for free BS to give that homeless person money and we don't do anything whether it's fear whether it's insecurity whether it's the lack of skill the lack of influence whatever it would be we see this throughout the pages of scripture this is not just Barak Moses who had a burning bush talk to him still had hesitation he still doubted and yet we see Barak here she's gently talking to him and saying, hey, hasn't God told you this? Now, I think that when, whether we are speaking about men or women, I think it's important that we speak to each other with truth in love. Now, interesting to note here, we know that Sisera had 40,000 men, and Barak, the leader of the Israelite army, had 10,000 men. That's a ratio of four to one. Now, a little history tidbit. Please bear with me. I'm a Bible geek, and so I just love this stuff. History tells us that leaders of armies quite uh, quite frequently would be taken and treated as prisoners of wars, POWs, tortured, and as a bargaining chip given back to the people um, so that they could have an oppressive hand. It's interesting to note that after uh, the judge had passed away and the children of Israel were doing their own thing, it's highly probable that he had been a prisoner of war not one, two, maybe even three times. So when Deborah is talking to him, it makes sense when she says, hasn't the Lord asked you to do this? And he has reservation. I want, to see, I want us to see the humanity of Barak. It's not that he's a pansy or a coward. He knows what that feels like. And many of us don't want to do things that God is calling us to do because we know what that feels like. And yet, she speaks to him, this beautiful mutual working relationship between a man and a woman, of speaking to a man, quite honestly, with a fragile ego, saying, has, it, has, has God asked you to do this? Are you, are you going to do that? I think it's important that when we deal with um, coworkers, bosses, friends, cousins, brothers, fathers, husbands, that we learn from Deborah, 
and speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love and grace. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you do not go with me, I won't go. Verse 9, certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, some theologians say that God only used a woman because nobody else was available to be used. Now, personally, I take offense to that as a woman because the God uh, who created time, space, and the universe, the God who parted the Red Sea, had manna fall from heaven, brought dead people back to life, he is too weak to raise up a man in a 40-year span. I, I kind of have some issues. Some of you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. But let me tell you something. This is what I firmly believe, that God is not looking for gender when he chooses to use somebody. It doesn't matter if you're, as, as Galatians says, that the, in the economy of Christ, whether you are rich or poor, slave man or free, male or female, God wants to use you. I love that we see in this portion of scripture, specifically in the life of Deborah, but in the characters that we read here, there are three points that I want to highlight. Number one, if you're taking note, leaders speak truth. Leaders speak truth. In these scriptures, we see the indecision of Barak, and we see the courageous heart of Deborah. She reminds him that, yes, God is going to give you this battle. You are going to win. But because of his fear, he said, I won't go unless you go with me. She said, you will win this battle. But the, the glory that you would receive, the notoriety that you should receive, is not going to go to you. It's going to go to a woman. Now, at this point, don't you think she could have castigated him, chided him, made fun of him, called him names? She did not. She said, okay, but let me tell you the outcome of that. Now, if the story stops here, if I'm reading this story and I said, and I'm reading that this amazing chick by the name of Deborah, who's influential and powerful and spiritual, says, the battle belongs to the Lord. You're going to win this battle, but the glory is going to go to a woman. I could stop right there and think, well, obviously it's going to go to Deborah. I mean, she's amazing, right? Very interesting. Hang tight. Now, I won't, don't want to focus on the indecision of Barak. I want to focus on the courageousness that we see here in Deborah. And she had a type of confidence. She was a leader that had such a confidence in others that empowered them to fulfill their calling. It empowered them to fulfill their destiny. That is the type of leader that Deborah was. And Barak needed more than an inspiring speech. He needed somebody. He needed a road dog. He needed somebody to be there with him. And so uh, Napoleon Bonaparte says that hope as a leader is dealing, is be, sim, being a leader is simply dealing out hope. And what Deborah is, is giving him not just a speech. I want to be like that type of leader, that type of leader that says, I will be by your side. Not only am I going to speak God's life and truth into you, I'm going to see this through. So number two, leaders must be willing to back up their words. Leaders must be willing to back up their words because it's one thing to say, oh, sister, God's going to be with you. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'm praying for you. But it's an entirely other thing that, to say, I have so much confidence in the promise of God's word that I'm going to stand by you. I'm going to stand next to you until we see God's hand come to fruition. That's the kind of confidence that we see here in, De in Deborah. So she boldly goes with him into battle. In verses 10 through 13, we're not going to read those, but basically Barak rounds up his troops and Deborah goes with him and Sisera rounds up his 40,000 men, weapons of mass destruction and, you know, the 900 chariots. And it picks up in verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, 
This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots as far as Harashesh Hagiyoim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the swords. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot, uh, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite, because of their alliance between Jabin, king of Hazar, and the family of Heber, of Heber the Kenite. So just as God has promised, victory was theirs. And just as God has promised then and throughout the scope of scripture and now, God wants to be on your side. We don't have to walk oppressed because of our enemies. We already have victory because of the name of Jesus Christ. We see that when God gives a promise, he is faithful to complete it. The greatest tactic of the enemy is reminding us constantly of what we're not. Barack, you are not a real man. Barack, you are not a good leader. Deborah, you are not a man. Deborah, you are not a leader. Deborah, you are not doing things. The enemy will come in. The enemy knows your name and calls you by your sin. But Jesus knows your sin and calls you by your name. And that is the difference. That is the difference. The enemy will come in and bark lies at you, telling you every day what you are not. But we serve a God who has named you, has formed you in the womb, that said, I don't care what has happened to you, for you, against you. I am on your side. You are a child of God. And in this arena, we see that when God makes a promise, he delivers. Check out verse 18. Jael went to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my Lord, come right in. Do not be afraid. He entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, Is anyone in there? You say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went it down quietly to him. While he lay fast asleep, exhausted, she drove a peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Listen, a lot of theologians don't understand what to do with this text. And the Bible doesn't explicitly say why Jael killed him. But this is some very clear speculation. I think Sisera's fatal flaw and fatal swoop was entering into Jael's tent and telling, him, and telling her, don't tell anyone I'm here. She knew that there was a battle between God's people and the Canaanites. She was in the middle. She knew that this man is running. She knew that this man was in battle. She knew that this man was by himself. And here, he, she's at, he is asking her to harbor him as a fugitive in her tent. Now, friends, I just moved into a new house about two weeks ago. And let me just tell you something real quick. If someone comes into my house and threatens my family, and is going to battle against the children of the God's chosen people, I'm going to tell you something real quick. I will take off my earrings, and I will go crazy up in there. I will bust a jai out. Don't come into my house. Don't come threaten my family. Don't threaten the children of God. No, she handled business. Again, theologians don't want to touch this passage, but I see here that who is the hero of this story? All of them. All of them rose to the occasion and responded to what we see. Very interesting fact. The last point, point number three, leaders look different. All of them led. All of them were very heroic. Deborah gave a prophetic word and went to battle with Barak. But Barak carried out that battle, went to war with Sisera and Jael. Like Deborah prophesied, brought down Canaanite army. This is very important to note that Joshua, as we read in the book right before Judges, God told him, destroy the Canaanites. Well, he didn't do all that God had commanded him. So now we have 
some amazing characters that are finishing the work of oppression, that are taking care of that enemy, that are taking care of that thing that's been, thing that's been gnawing and gnawing and gnawing at them for years. The hands of the woman who brought down 400 years of Canaanite oppression didn't come from Deborah, who would be like a corporate CEO running a Fortune 100 company. It didn't come at the hand of an army general. It came at the hand of a stay-at-home mom. You know what's very important? Sometimes we as a church demean various professions, what God has called us to. Sometimes we demean the profession of a stay-at-home mom, but if God has called you there, run in your lane. You are pouring into the next generation of leaders, but we're sometimes demeaning and demoting people in the workforce, whether it's men or women, saying this is what you're supposed to do. If God has put a calling and a profession upon your life, heed that well. In the words of my father, it doesn't matter if you work in a warehouse or you're serving the White House, God has a plan for you. Walk boldly in that. This is important for me because I feel like a lot of my life, I feel like Deborah. I felt like the kid who wasn't chosen. I felt like the kid that was dumb. I was the kid that was raised in the hood. I was the kid who couldn't read, write, or spell at the age of 11. I was raised by uh, an illegal immigrant into this country who knew that God had a plan for his life. And when he came here to the country at the age of eight, he didn't really know what was going on, but he fought for this country valiantly in the United States Marine Corps and became a citizen of the United States. He's been raising his family faithfully, serving God. And I had this moment when I realized that there's a call of ministry upon my dad's life. And when there's a call of ministry upon your parents' life, it's a call of ministry on the family's life. And being the kid that was marginalized and made fun of and obese and dumb, I came to this point in my life where I had to. I had to believe that the promises of the Bible were for me. It wasn't for the skinny kids whose thighs didn't touch. It wasn't for those of lighter skin. It wasn't just for boys. It wasn't for rich people. That those promises, the promises that we see in the scope of Scripture, are for me and for you. That God is calling each and every one of us to do what he has purposed and called us to do. And as the the Lord told Barak to go, God is calling you and you and you and you and you and you and me to go. That could be go to a boardroom or go into your living room, but get up and go and do what God has called you to do. So when I accepted my role at A21 as the chief storyteller, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a physician, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a therapist. I just love words. The stupid dumb kid who couldn't read. Um, God graciously allowed me to go to graduate school and on a full ride scholarship and graduate graduate school with a 4.0. But when God blesses you, it's not so you could be there and look cute. God blesses you so you could be a resource to other people. Hello, rich people, give, give, give. But when God blesses you, it's the truth. I don't get paid from the church, so I can talk about money. Y'all can't hate me. Um, when God blesses you, it's not so you can be cute. When God blesses you, you can be blessed to be a blessing. So God gave me a love for words, and I knew working for A21 here in Orange County that I wasn't going to be like Liam Neeson and, you know, kick down brothel doors. I was going to use words to free people. I had no anticipation that I would ever meet a victim of, of, of trafficking. And yet, a couple years ago, I was packing a bag to go visit my coworkers um, in Europe, and I got an email as I was packing that said, there's a girl in the detention center who believed that she's a victim of human trafficking. I told our legal team and uh, the lawyers there in the detention center that uh, you'd be able to translate for this young girl. We'll see you in 17 hours. Ah, hold up. I may be brown, but like the Spanish that I know was watching novelas with my grandmother, you know, the Spanish soap operas. So to speak about illegal ramification of entry into the European Union without proper documentation, blah, blah, blah. 
No. So I, you know, bold and confident, full of grace and faith in Lord Jesus Christ said, I don't think I'm the right person. She emailed back immediately and said, you're our only option. I said, well, then I'm your best option. I hopped on Twitter, Facebook, the blog. I called my mom. I called my dad, my neighbor's sister's dog walking friend. I said, I need the gift of tongues in Spanish. Like, I need something. Somebody help me. I was, um, pray- I was in my journal and I was praying and I was trying to write down all the Spanish phrases I knew and I was trying to think of a script and I landed, was picked up by our lawyer, put in a taxi, taken to the detention center, and we got to the front gate, showed him my passport, and they said, are you the translator? And I said, see? (laughs) They took us over up to the second story, and I'll never forget, I could see the mint green colored walls. I could see the thick haze of cigarette smoke from the guards that had been chain smoking, talking loudly with their hands as Greeks do. We were ushered over to a concrete row of cells concrete floors, concrete walls, concrete ceilings. Nothing separating freedom from captivity except thick steel bars. I looked into a cell that had 13, 14, 15 girls on thin, dingy mats covering themselves with green burlap blankets, laying in a state of comatose, watching a 12-inch television monitor screen of Dancing with the Stars. In that moment, I was so taken back. I said, how is this going on. How are we selling human beings? How are people being trafficked and captured? How is there 20 million slaves across the globe right now generating $32 billion with the average age of entry into the United States of being trafficked is 11? How is this going on? I prayed a bold prayer. I said, God, you took the fat kid. You took the dumb kid. You took the stupid kid. You took the kid who couldn't read, who was raised in the hood. You brought her to the other side of the world. So as you love me and had a plan for the purpose of my life, you've got to give me the words to give this girl freedom. The guard motioned to a girl, caramel color skin, big, beautiful chocolate brown eyes. She stood to her feet. She came to the, the, the fence, the gate with trepidation. And the moment that I said, hola, mi Bianca, nosotros queremos ayudar. Hello, my name is Bianca, we are here to help you. She immediately reached out and she said, ayúdame, ayúdame, por favor, help me, help me, please. I was so taken back by those words. And we can look at this story and say that it's one girl crying out for help, but I firmly believe that there are millions, not just those enslaved that are crying out, help me, help me, please, but there are millions across the globe and in this country, county and in this church that are crying out, ayúdame, ayúdame, por favor. You may not be a slave in physical captivity, but you may be a slave to sin, a slave to alcohol, to debt, to drugs, to divorce, to work. You may be a, sin, a, a slave to sin and you are crying out, help me, help me, please. I moved to Orange County. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I thought I came up. I was like, oh, I moved to Orange County. There's no graffiti. There's valet parking at my gym. Women's foreheads don't move and body parts stay perky for the rest of their life. Like, hey, you know what I realized? It's what P. Diddy said: more money, more problems. We just add, we just fake the funk in Orange County. How are you? Great at the country club. Oh, juniors in sports. When there are people outside of these walls and in this church that are looking for hope. You are not a hero. You are a leader who are appointing somebody to a hero, and that man is Jesus Christ. He can free everyone who has been enslaved. He can bring you hope. He can bring you healing. He can look at you beside, despite your sin, in spite of your story, and say, I do have a plan and a purpose for your life. So what we see here in the lives of Deborah, what we see here in the lives of Brock, we see in the lives of Jael that it doesn't matter if you are sick, if you are depressed, if you are 
suffering from a divorce, if you're feeling alone, if you are financially, emotionally, relationally bankrupt, God wants to use you. He is stronger than the enemies that come face to face. We serve a hero who truly is epic. When we stand up, when we rise up, we know that God is stronger. We are told in the next chapter, which is a song that Barak and Deborah wrote together, the only song in the entire Bible that is co-written by a man and a woman, they say this as we close out in Judges chapter 5, verses 2 and 9. It's on the screen. When the princes of Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. When the heart is with Israel's princes, with willing volunteers among the people, raise the Lord. Ethan, I want you to come up here with the band. I want us to willingly give our hearts to praise the Lord. I don't know how you came in, but I get the honor and the privilege of telling you, you can leave out victorious in the name of Jesus. This is not name it and claim it. This is not wealth and health. This is the power of a, of a man named Jesus who came to give you life and hope and love and freedom. This is not a religious obligation. This is people who are crazy in love with Jesus. And there's an invitation for you to stand, an invitation for you to rise, metaphorically, proverbially, you don't have to stand right now. If you want to, to worship Jesus, I encourage you, let us be a worshipful community. But God is beckoning us as heroes and as leaders to point the way to Jesus. Whether you lead one, 100, 1,000, or 1 million people, we are an army serving one God Almighty, will you please stand with me to your feet as we worship God? If you would love some prayer, if you would love Jesus in your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, if you would love to tithe generously, if you would love to pray, if you'd love to be prayed over, we have people along the sides on the prayer wall that want to pray over you. Do not leave without accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Do not leave without prayer. Do not leave without being encouraged. Do not leave without giving God of our tithes and finances. But more importantly right now, don't leave with a bitter heart. You know how you get bitter? Let go. Raise your hands and boldly serve Jesus. Love Jesus. You give a word of your life as we worship him boldly. Thank you, God, for the word that you've spoken to us. Be magnified in here. Be glorified, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.